The holidays are coming up, and it's time to get festive, whether you like it or not. To help you get the holiday vibes going, the Cricut Store has brand new goodies to deck out your tree and wrap up under it. What better way to say, thank God 2023 is almost over than with an ornament to remember this year by. The new ornament is inspired by all the Trump indictments this year, and we're also bringing back a couple of favorite ornaments from years past. Get as jolly as you were when you first saw Trump's mugshot with new best-selling holiday sweaters and tees perfect for the family holiday party, where you know your MAGA cousin is going to corner you and talk about the plight of millionaires. Head to crooked.com store to shop. America Dissected is brought to you by the DeBeaumont Foundation. From clean water to food safety standards to pandemic preparedness, public health saved your life today. At the DeBeaumont Foundation, they create practical solutions that improve the health of communities across the country, enabling everyone to achieve their best possible health. To learn more about how advancing policy, creating partnerships, strengthening public health, and improving communication can make a difference, visit DeBeaumont.org. Infant mortality in the United States increased in 2022, the first time in two decades. The American Medical Association considers supporting single-payer healthcare. Healthcare activist Adi Barkin dies of complications of ALS at 39. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Sayed. Saturday morning cartoons. Remember those? Among the many reasons I'm grateful to have grown up in the 90s was that hallowed Saturday morning ritual observed by millions of children like me. I'd be up at like 8 before anyone else in the house. I'd turn on that tube television with 47 channels, and I'd fix myself a bowl of cereal. Mom wouldn't let me eat the sweet stuff on weekdays, but weekends? Ah, my time. It was Cocoa Puffs or Cinnamon Toast Crunch for me. As I devoured those little sugar bombs, their commercials would intersperse my cartoons, featuring either Sunny, who was, of course, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, or the Cinnamon Toast Crunch chefs, virtually guaranteeing that they'd be a regular part of my breakfast every Saturday. All was right in the world. Only it really wasn't. I didn't realize it, but the millions of us were unsuspecting victims of an elaborate scheme to convince us and our parents that the mainline sugar we were eating was, quote, part of a balanced breakfast. That scheme hinged on the industry's ability to do a couple of basic things, feed us cheap ingredients at marked up prices, and guarantee that we'd keep buying it. It starts with the first ingredient in Cocoa Puffs, corn. Corn is artificially cheap in America the byproduct of a decades-old public policy in this country that has us subsidizing its production by factory farms. Those subsidies have helped drive the consolidation of agribusiness, displacing family farms nationwide. And those corporate farms sell directly to multinational food corporations that rely on our artificially cheap corn supplies to manufacture the very cereals I and millions of other kids were eating. But if all I was eating was subsidized Iowa corn, I probably wouldn't be so excited to eat it. It's that second ingredient that got me and millions of other kids hooked, the sugar. I have to admit that I'm still, at almost 40 years old, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. It's not just the fact that they're little sugar balls. There are lots of ways to get a sugar fix after all. It's the fact that they embody the nostalgia of childhood. That's because for decades, the company that sells them, General Mills, made sure that they literally became the taste of my childhood. That has nothing to do with the puffs themselves. It's a product of the marketing that the company put into them. Cocoa Puffs have been around since 1956. Their avatar, Sonny, he's been around since 1962. He's gotten a couple of redesigns and some new voices, but he's still the same old Sonny, and he's still, well, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And because of Sonny, whenever I hear cuckoo for, I think Cocoa Puffs. Chances are, love him or hate him, you do too. And that brand, that's 
powerful. And the companies that have been feeding American kids like me cereal for decades have put a lot of time and effort into making sure those brands associations stick. Let's try something. Name the avatar for each of these children's cereals. Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops, Cap'n Crunch. Okay, that one's literally in the name. If you named Tony the Tiger, Toucan Sam, and well, Cap'n Crunch, aka Horatio Magellan Crunch, their marketing worked on you too. Now look, I'm not one of those finger-waggy public health people that believes there's no room to live a little. I still enjoy a bowl of sugary cereal every once in a while, though my tastes have evolved a bit. Along with Cocoa Puffs, I also enjoy a bowl of Reese's Puffs nowadays. And if you haven't had one, I'm not recommending it, but I'm just saying. But when I enjoy it, I enjoy a bowl for dessert once in a while. The fact that millions of children around the country and around the world because of our country eat this stuff every morning as breakfast, that's wild. The recommended serving of Cinnamon Toast Crunch has the equivalent of three added teaspoons of sugar. And let's be clear, most folks don't eat the recommended serving. They eat a lot more than that. What's the upshot? Rates of pediatric diabetes are higher than they've ever been. And for that reason, in 2019, the Mexican government decided to fight back against the cereal industry. They forced manufacturers to put warning labels on products with excess sugar or fats. Worse still for the manufacturers, if their products contained a warning label, they were banned from promoting their products with their ubiquitous mascots. So that meant that Kellogg's, manufacturers of Frosted Flakes and Froot Loops, could no longer include Sam El Tucan and El Tigre Tonio on their boxes. And let's just say they went cuckoo. I learned about Mexico's efforts to protect the kids from marketing designed to normalize diabetes-causing foods in a recent article from Nick Forco at Stat News. And I knew I had to have him on the show to share more about what Mexico did, how the manufacturers responded, and what it means for similar regulations that may be coming around the pike here in the U.S. Here's my conversation with Nick Florco. Can you introduce yourself for the tape? Sure. My name is Nick Florco, and I'm the reporter on the commercial determinants of health at STAT. So I, um, I wanted to reach out and talk to you because uh, <laughs> I have mixed feelings about uh, Tony the Tiger or uh, El Tigre Tonio, as, uh, as he's called in Mexico. And on the one hand, he was like the character of, of Saturday morning cartoons. And like, you know, when I was five, they really were great. And the problem is, is that I'm like a lot older than that now. And um, I, I very much understand that they're not that great. And, uh, and, and that's why regulators are trying to do something about it. So I, I want to step back here and just give, give some context. Um, can you talk a little bit about labeling laws? Like, what do they do? Why do they exist? Uh, and, and do they actually work? Sure. Um, so in the U.S., right, we, we really only have one true sort of food labeling law when it comes to nutrition, which is the nutrition vax label, which is what you see like on the back of a package of food. Um, it's interesting. That actually has only existed since the 1990s. Um, and I have to admit, I was a young kid back then. But my understanding is that was actually created really in response to consumers growing interest in nutrition and the subsequent rise of food companies making nutritional claims about their products. And really the confusion that that created for consumers. Uh, you know, in, in preparation for this, I was looking back at some history and the former uh, head of the federal health department in 1990 uh, gave this quote, which I have to read. The grocery store has become a tower of Babel and consumers need to be linguists, scientists, and mind readers to understand the many labels they see. So that's where we were just, you know, three decades ago. Um, and to your question of do food labels work, uh, 
the research that I've seen says, yes, they do. I mean, there's this new experiment going on, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, which is uh, adding a warning label to the front of a food package. Uh, the idea being the consumer is making a split-second decision, trying to decide, should I buy this cereal or this cereal? They see a warning on the front of one of them that says, hey, there's excess sugar. They might not buy it. They might go to another one. We're still gathering data on sort of the actual impacts of that, but that's sort of the new frontier in food labeling and what a bunch of countries around the world are doing and what the U.S. is actually toying with doing as well. So I want to talk a little bit about that because, you know, when we're talking about, about food labeling, particularly when you're talking about the warnings, you're talking about high uh, macronutrient-dense, uh, micronutrient-poor foods that are highly processed in um, or super processed in the, in the language of, of one of our previous guests here. And you're talking about stuff that one should not be thinking about eating all too often as a, as a part of a regular diet. Um, and there are a lot of countries that have gone far further, far faster than we have to give us context though, in order to, you know, to think about labeling as a, as a public health intervention, you have to understand how the corporations that manufacture these foods try to market themselves. Can you give us some some context about that? What is the way they market? How do they try and push themselves uh, into the eyes uh, and, and ultimately into the guts of consumers, uh, particularly our youngest consumers? Yeah, I mean, you already mentioned it at the start, to be honest. Tigre Tonio, as it's known, in, he's known in Mexico or Tony the Tiger here in the U.S. Um, I mean, that's a, a big way that, that food companies do market their products is, is using mascots, sort of making sure that those mascots get in front of of younger people. And there's, there's really interesting research actually coming out, sort of looking at what the long-term impact of things like that are. Um, so for example, I mean, there's, there's a study that showed that if you have a positive association with, um, you know, a mascot on an unhealthy food, as a kid, you're more likely to sort of have a biased view of, of how healthy that food is as an adult. Um, and what we really know is that when you try to take away those sorts of marketing tactics uh, from food companies, uh, they will fight pretty darn hard to keep them. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to go into it, but the experience in Mexico with them trying to ban mascots on their products is really one clear example of sort of what happens when you try to take away Tony the Tiger. And I, I want to get to that. Um, but it's actually kind of crazy when I think about the foods that were pushed as like breakfast when I was a kid. I, I don't know if they still exist now. But like to me, the craziest one was cookie crisp. Like the notion that very small cookies that are in bite sizes that you can then mix with milk should be like eaten for breakfast and that the industry got away with marketing small cookies as breakfast made absolutely zero sense to me. But I can think about all of these breakfast cereals that are extremely high in sugar, very low in protein, and were marketed as a, a part of a balanced breakfast. I think that was the term they always used. Um, can you explain, you know, you talked a little bit about the connection between childhood and adulthood. Um, can you explain, you know, particularly why breakfast became this way to like really jam kids full of sugar at the beginning of a day? And like why breakfast cereals tend to be so marketed in this particular way? I think one of the ways that that folks got away with putting so much sugar, frankly, in, in breakfast cereals is sugar science, quote unquote, has been hotly debated for for decades. And we now know that industry played a big role in that. Um, so there was documents uh, uncovered a few years back that found that in the 1960s, food companies were intentionally funding research that downplayed the role of, of sugar in coronary heart disease. 
and purposely focused the debate on fat. Um, and we still see a lot of these arguments happening today of added sugar is not the problem. Excess any macronutrient is the problem. Why are we focusing on added sugar when we're not focusing on total sugar, like sugar you'd find in fruit? What we've seen is like decades of, of this debate over whether sugar is good or bad. And we've ended up in this country with, a, with uh, looser restrictions around, around sugar than other potentially unhealthy substances. Like if you look, for example, at sodium, at least in the U.S., there's a voluntary goal for manufacturers to lower their sodium in food. It's voluntary, but it exists. That doesn't even exist for sugar. Um, so we are just like, when we think about uh, what we should be limiting in our diet, sugar has sort of been like the last issue to be addressed. Hmm. I, I really appreciate that you start at the, you know, the science debate level, right? If you can make something controversial that uh, really on its face should not be, you can tie up any effort to regulate it simply by pointing to what ends up being somewhat bunk science to, to, to substantiate your point. There's difference of opinion here. And, you know, th that's a playbook that a lot of the COVID deniers uh, used far later on. Um, I, I want to uh, now turn to the, the Mexico example, right? And uh, we can talk about uh, El Tigre Tonio here. Um, so the Mexican government uh, decides to take a stand against what is largely American corporations selling um, straight sugar to kids, in effect. Uh, and they take the stand in 2019. Can you tell us what they did? Yeah. Uh, essentially, they required warning labels on the front of packages that look like stop signs um, that say excess sugar. <laughs> if a food has excess sugar, there's a warning label on it that says excess sugar. If there's, if there's excess sodium, it says excess sodium. If there's excess fat, it says excess fat. It honestly sounds really simple, um, but it ended up prompting a multi-year, just all-out brawl with uh, with food companies, and especially the folks that were pushing food, you know, ultra-processed foods with lots of sugar. And and where does uh, Tony the Tiger or El Tigre Tonio come in? <laughs> well, interestingly, one of the pieces of the Mexico law was that if you uh, have a warning label on your product, you can't also use a mascot or any sort of cartoon. And the idea being here that you don't want kids getting attracted to this food uh, that is potentially unhealthy for them just because they're seeing a mascot that they like and they've seen commercials. What we saw was that there was just uh, food companies got very, very creative, specifically Kellogg got really creative in figuring out ways to get around uh, that requirement. Uh, my favorite is that they, my, sort of the one I like to focus on is that they basically launched this campaign in Mexico that translated to always with you, where these mascots were featured in all different forms uh, of media. So Tony the Tiger was curating Spotify playlists. He was on <laughs> commercials alongside soccer announcers. And then, I mean, my favorite, and I think the one that really has just stuck with me the most, is that essentially Kellogg paid to have a drone show above Mexico City, where they used drones to sort of draw all the characters in the sky. Um, so the goal, of course, of all of this is to sort of not erase the mascots from consumer memory and to keep using them, even if they can't actually use them on certain food packages. Yeah, it's an interesting approach here because it's one thing to have a mascot. It's another to have a mascot that tries to sell a good when by definition, you can't associate the mascot with the good. And what that tells you is that 
they have so burnt in what that mascot stands for through decades and decades and decades of marketing that even when they cannot put Tony the Tiger or Toucan Sam in in, in the same case on their packaging for the good that those mascots are associated with, they believe that they can continue to sell their product simply by making you think about Tony the Tiger and Toucan Sam. It really speaks to the uh, the impact these mascots must actually have on sort of their their bottom lines. And I'm sure we'll talk about sort of the U.S. and what the U.S. is considering. But the U.S. doesn't have, uh, or is it isn't considering sort of ban on mascots. As, at least public information suggests that at this point they're not considering a ban on mascots. And it sort of raises the question of like, was Mexico sort of onto something here? Um, is this something that actually could have a potential public health impact if the food companies are just so aggressively trying to fight it and so openly trying to fight it? Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of a principle here where if you're trying to regulate an industry that you know has a set of externalities that include obesity, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, or in the in the uh, tobacco case, uh, lung cancer, heart disease, and stroke, you kind of want to hit them where it hurts. And they'll tell you where it hurts by how how loudly they scream. And so, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think that punching them in the mascot would have such a huge impact. But if their response is to go like absolutely, truly apeshit, or in this case, tiger shit, to, to put their mascot everywhere, it tells you that there's something really deep about their marketing, and that the ability to associate your food with a cartoon character really does create, you know, a level of almost loyalty that that um, increases the probability that kids are and, and, and then adults are going to continue to buy this good. And so, you know, it, it must be effective if they're that upset about it. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit that, I mean, I, I went to Mexico for the story, but I didn't have the foresight to actually uh, go there to report the story. I was sort of just had the privilege to be there. And I had known about this policy and sort of, honestly, I'd sort of just wondered, like, you know, what is the big impact going to be? How big of a deal is this? Like, I had heard the U.S. was doing something similar. And uh, it was really eye-opening how quickly talking to advocates and uh, in the country, sort of how aggressively the food companies fought this and how big of a deal it was for them. Because it doesn't, it sounds pretty basic and uh, not so, super controversial to add a little bit of information about, uh, you know, a food's health effects on the front of a label and, and maybe restrict some marketing. But it really, really has prompted a response. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Nick Florco after this break. Karyuma has been our go-to sneaker for a while now because they're really comfortable, go with everything, and they're made with consciously sourced materials. Look, I love and wear Karyuma sneakers all the time. I literally just took them off because they're comfortable, they look great, they last a long time, and they're good for the planet. Last year, we collaborated with Karyuma to create No Steps Back sneakers. We can't believe they now have designed a second limited edition collaboration with us, the Love It or Leave It sneaker. These shoes have a colorful design with lots of Easter eggs. I mean, not Taylor Swift level Easter eggs, we're not insane. Just fun stuff like Pundit on a surfboard. Plus, a portion of the proceeds from every pair sold is donated to VSA's Every Last Vote Fund. Our first Karyuma collab sold out super fast. So if you want a pair for yourself or the Love It fan in your life, make sure to snag one now. They make the perfect gift for the holiday season with free returns. Just head to crooked.com slash store. Embrace the power of freedom with a message from the incredible 2023 Marguerite Casey Foundation Freedom Scholar, Professor Charmaine Chua. Charmaine's wisdom is crystal clear. 
Freedom is a democratic enterprise, and it's up to us to shape it. We can't sit back and wait for others to shift the balance of power. We've got to do it ourselves. MCF Freedom Scholars are at the forefront of academia, offering critical insights for social justice and sparking groundbreaking ideas to transform our democracy, economy, and society. Join MCF in the journey of change and discover more about Charmaine in the entire 2023 Freedom Scholars. Visit them at caseygrants.org or connect with them on social media at Casey Grants. America Dissected is brought to you by Article. If you want beautiful, well-crafted furniture that stands the test of time and looks great in your home without having to pay a middleman or the hassle of having to worry about shipping, Article is your choice. Article believes in delightful design for every home, and thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices, too. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, yes, Scandi and Boho designs make furniture shopping simple. Article's team of designers are all about finding the perfect balance between style, quality, and price. They're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and looks great doing it. Article offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. Plus, they won't leave you waiting around. You pick the delivery date, and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Article's knowledgeable customer care team is there when you need them to make sure your experience is smooth and stress-free. Article's offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash AD, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's A-R-T-I-C-L-E dot com slash AD for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. One of the other things that they did was they started to use artificial sweeteners so they could get by the the, the sugar regulation. Can you speak to their use of, of, of allulose in particular to try and get past this? Yeah, um, it's funny. I discovered this by actually sort of walking through a Walmart in Mexico City. Um, and I looked at a package and saw a box of cereal and it was reformulated. It still had uh, Tony the Tiger on it, or actually in this case, it was Toucan Sam. And the label said it had one gram of added sugar. And the first time I, I saw this, I sort of went home and I, I molded it. And I was just sort of like, how could a Fruit Loop have that little sugar without just tasting completely it's different? It's just I mean, I should have, one Fruit Loop in the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> right. And I, I, I should have just went home. I should have went and bought it in that moment. Um, but I was so confident that there must be this new version because actually Mexico has a rule that if a product uses an artificial sweetener, it also has to include a warning on the package that it has an artificial sweetener. And this one didn't. So I was totally confused. And eventually I went back to that Walmart and looked even closer. And what I found was that the product listed allulosa or allulose as an ingredient. Um, and allulose is a, is a sugar-free sweetener. Um, but it's one of the few that's technically not considered by Mexico as an artificial sweetener. And there's reporting to suggest that, you know, the food industry did sort of lobby the, the Mexican government to not have allulose classified as an artificial sweetener. And so Kellogg's basically found a way to sell its product, you know, without an added sugar warning by reformulating it. But then they were also able to avoid the warning that was meant to uh, warn consumers about the, the reformulation. And I think the other interesting thing here, since we already talked about mascots, is that by doing this, they're also able to keep their mascots in the stores because that new product doesn't have any warnings on it, which means Toucan Sam can be on the package. So essentially, when you walk around the grocery store aisle, you see you know, the warning label version, which is a plain box, and then you see the one with Toucan Sam, the reformulated, and that means that the mascots are getting into the into the grocery stores and into the cereal shelves just as much, and kids are seeing it. So, you know, it's a really, it sort of, it benefits them in multiple ways. Wow. So they went as far as to 
lobby the government to leave one of these artificial sweeteners off so they could put it in their cereal so that they could keep putting their mascots on their cereal. And like that's, I mean, that's like a, that is a long game. That it just takes a lot of foresight. I, I mean, I should say, uh, I don't know if we have that clear of a line all the way through at this exact moment. Like I, I would have, you have to see sort of exactly when they lobbied around allulose. But um, yeah, I mean, there's some skilled lawyers in figuring out, you know, what product they could use to avoid having to have the warnings and, and still be able to sell their, you know, their product. See, the crazy thing is these are children's cereals. And the reason non-sugar sweeteners work is because these are molecules that continue to bind to your sugar receptors on your tongue, but are not picked up in your small intestine and digested. Allulose is, is, is technically a rare sugar. It's, it's not a sugar alcohol. Uh, it's what's called a monosaccharide. Um, but your, your, tongue, it, your tongue recognizes it, so you taste the sweetness, albeit with more uh, what we call avidity, meaning it, meaning it binds a lot stronger to your tongue. That's why a lot of these sweeteners taste saccharine, like they're, they taste artificially sweet, like not, as, not like sugar, which is just the right um, taste for our, our uh, taste buds. But your gut doesn't recognize them, so they, they flow on into your large intestine. But here's the thing about it. In your large intestine, because they are undigested molecules, they pull water into your colon and they cause diarrhea. And so you can imagine, right? Like I remember when I was a kid and I used to eat these sugar-sweetened uh, cereals, I wouldn't just have a bowl. I'd have like three or four bowls. So you can imagine a bunch of kids, unfortunate children who saw Tony the Tiger or Toucan Sam, decided to buy the sugar or like push their parents to buy the sugar, ate three bowls and then just had diarrhea for the rest of the day. And it's just like, it's like an awful thing that these, these manufacturers know is going to happen. Like they, they know that this is going to happen. And there's like no indication that this is any different than the usual cereal, except for it looks like the cereal used to look. So the U.S. doesn't have a restrict or a requirement to warn about artificial sweeteners on their packages. But interestingly enough, the group that's pushing for more disclosures of, of uh, artificial sweeteners is the sugar industry. Uh, and they're petitioning the FDA to require companies to sort of more clearly state when a product has an artificial sweetener and to block companies from, from claiming that their products are lower in sugar without also noting they have artificial sweeteners. But the reason I bring this up is because on the allulose front, They've actually specifically petitioned the FDA to require companies that use allulose to have a warning that says it may cause a laxative effect. <laughs> you can't make this shit up. <laughs> it, it's pretty remarkable the infighting you see in the food industry. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm just I, at this point. I'm really just I like the, my heart goes out to these poor kids in Mexico who are just like, yo, what happened today? I was just busy mining, I was eating my cereal, watching my cartoons, and I don't know what happened. <laughs> um, I want to ask you, you know, obviously, this battle is still ongoing. Where do you think this ends up? Where are the, the legal teams for Kellogg um, and the Mexican government going next? What, what do you think this evolves into? Do you feel like they'll be able to repeal some of these laws? Do you feel like they'll just you know, put up with it? Where does this go next? So... I'm not a lawyer, but I will say in the Mexican case, things are looking pretty good, actually. Um, so the food industry threw everything at, at challenging this legally as well. I mean, the, the Mexican legal system is, is different than the U.S. system. So these numbers you know, wouldn't be the same if it was in the U.S., but there is like estimates of 70 to 100 lawsuits filed against this. Um, and a bunch of those have already made it up to sort of their appeals level courts. 
And those courts actually do put out sort of um, draft opinions before they they decide on what they're going to do. And those seem to suggest that they are going to uphold the law. And the Mexican regulators that have been behind this have been really steadfast in, you know, throughout the regulatory process, the, the food companies have, you know, tried to make tweaks along the edges to this. And they've been, um, you know, very skeptical of those and, and really pushed forward with what they were they were intending to do. Honestly, the bigger legal uh, fight might be here in the U.S. because the U.S. is considering a similar food labeling policy, one that's a, a little bit weaker, to be honest. But here in the U.S., I mean, even when I talk to the most enthusiastic supporters of this, they acknowledge that our rules around sort of when the government can regulate uh, a corporation's speech, they're going to be a problem. And the food companies are already sort of making very thinly veiled threats around like potentially suing over any sort of mandatory front of package labeling here in the U.S. I mean, that's really where the fight's going to be. In Mexico, it's actually looking pretty good. I mean, it's survived thus far. And um, I mean, there's no indication at this point that, you know, it's going to be thrown out. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's being proposed here in the U.S.? Yeah, happy to. Um, So it's in very early stages, first of all. The FDA is currently at the stage where they are studying the sorts of labels that they might use. So they're not even in sort of like the formal proposal stage. Um, But basically, what they're thinking about is less... uh, maybe striking warnings than in Mexico. So not like the stop sign that says excess sugar or excess fat, but something relatively similar. So like some of the designs they're they're testing kind of look like stoplights where it would be like, you know, green food, you know, low in in sugar, red food, high in sugar. Um, And so they're deciding above, I think it's six labels right now of sort of which one they're thinking about. Um, And, but the, the policy won't include sort of things, at least, Thus far, it hasn't included things like artificial sweetener warnings. It's also, um, they're not thinking about this as sort of a warning. Um, You know, folks have said, like, you need to be putting warning labels on products. And essentially, they're saying, no, we're going to say the products are high in sugar or high in fat. We're not going to warn around it. And then it's not going to include things like mascot bands, for example, at least not yet. I mean, like I said, it's really early stages. Anything could change. But all indications suggest that they're going to go with something a bit simpler that essentially just says, hey, this food is high in sugar. And what's, what is the timeline on this that's being considered? Oh, that's a good question. It's always dangerous to try to predict FDA regulatory timelines or any regulatory timelines. Um, what I can say is that uh, I believe at this point they should be actually doing the formal studying now. Uh, when I talked to the FDA commissioner, he did say to me that this was something that he wanted to do during his last stint in the administration because he was also the FDA commissioner in the Obama administration. Uh, and he, so he feels really passionate about this. Like, it's pretty clear. Um, and this is also part of a larger strategy that the Biden White House is pushing because they had this large summit on, on nutrition and health uh, a few months ago. And so, I mean, this overall is clearly a priority. I don't think this is the sort of thing that's going to get slow walked at the agency. But, I mean, it's going to be a slow process. Like, I mean, the way this works is they're going to do these studies. They're going to review the studies. They're going to put out a proposed rule. They're going to take comment from the food industry. They're going to get so many comments you won't believe. They're going to have to go through them all really carefully and address them all because they're going to get brought up in litigation eventually. Then they're going to finalize it. And then there's going to be, you know, probably an implementation period, which could be, you know, it could be months, it could be years. So, I mean, it's it's going to be a while is the short answer. Mm. And you talked a little bit about how the industry is gearing up here. Obviously, we're a much bigger market and 
um, you know, we are the we're the home of a lot of these these large corporations. Kellogg is based not a hundred miles from 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 where I, I'm sitting right here in Michigan. Um, you know, in so many ways, as you talked about, our public policy tends to be a lot more sympathetic to large corporations and a lot more sympathetic on on speech grounds. What I'm hearing you say is that they would have to put a warning label on their product, which of course has a lot of precedent in uh, the setting of tobacco. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that precedent applies or, or maybe doesn't apply here? That's a good question. So the, uh, the understanding that I have is essentially the fact that these labels can be considered. And the issue is that they're, if they're sort of interpretive, uh, as I understand it. So the, the food industry is essentially arguing that they can't be forced to say something that uh, is not sort of... Uh, you know, indisputable fact, essentially. Uh, that's how I sort of understand what their arguments they've thrown at thus far has been. Um, in terms of the the connection to tobacco warning labels, I mean, I'll just note that those have also been uh, repeatedly challenged in litigation. I mean, so, you know, in both cases, these sorts of things, anytime you get into, you know, compelled speech, you almost always in the U.S. get a lawsuit and it gets fought out. Um the other interesting thing I'll just say is that the policy argument here is is kind of interesting because the food companies are essentially arguing, we're already doing this and there's a less burdensome way that we can do this ourselves, um, which I think will eventually sort of feed into their legal argument. But essentially, you've probably, if any, you've been to the grocery store, you've probably seen that some foods do have some sort of uh, information on the front of them that says, this has this much sugar, this has this many calories. Um, that's what the food industry calls facts up front. It was their voluntary effort to sort of uh, address this issue. There's a lot of differences, though, between those labels and what we actually see in terms of what the FDA is studying. Um, because those labels, for example, will say like five grams of added sugar or five grams of total sugar. And it won't say high in sugar, for example. So the average consumer looking at that isn't getting anything to sort of interpret, is this good or is this bad? They're just getting the same information that they saw on the back on the front. Um, and basically the food companies argue that like, Hey, we can do this. You can't mandate us to do this thing where you say, you know, you set a guardrail on, or a, a guideline on what is high amounts of sugar. And then we have to put it on our food because you think our food is high in sugar. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question right now, but what actually drives a lot of the consumption. And I happen to be one that says that, you know, as far as food labeling unto itself is better than not food labeling. When I think about the value of food labeling versus a lot of the agricultural policy around subsidies, for example, that disproportionately drop the price of sugar, right? A lot of the sugar we're talking about isn't actually sugar. It's high fructose corn syrup. And that corn syrup comes out of corn that is highly subsidized in the American mar marketplace. And you know, you think about the ways that that drives the economics of being able to put sugar everywhere and make a lot of money off of it. I wonder how valuable it is relative to other things. And at the same time, I think about, is this is an example of the industry just being willing to push back as hard as it possibly can on any regulation? Or is it the industry really believing that this is going to take a hit relative to some other policies? Or is it the fact that in the United States, we've just been so piss poor at regulating the food industry at all in a positive way. Uh, you, know, you cover the commercial determinants of health, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on 
the kind of public policy we should be seeing if we truly, really wanted to reduce uh, the burden of diabetes, for example, in our society, what would we be doing to regulate the food space? Is it this? Is it something else? Is it some combination uh, of some of these policies? So, I mean, I'll say as any good reporter that I'm not in the business of making policy recommendations, but sort of reporting on their impacts. Um, so with that framing, I'll say, in terms of what we know sort of has shown some potential benefits, like one of the policies that I think is worth bringing up that has uh, generated quite a lot of controversy in this country is um, the so-called tax on sugar-sweetened beverages to dissuade consumption, so the so-called soda tax. And we've seen those enacted on a local level with some some you know pretty encouraging results. There was a study that came out of Oakland, for example, um, that found that sugar-sweetened beverage purchases declined by more than a quarter in Oakland after the tax versus a neighboring city that didn't have a tax. Uh, one of the other really interesting policies that we're seeing tried, but I don't think we really have great results on yet, um, is simply just banning the sale of sugary products to kids. Uh, the state of Oaxaca in Mexico has actually tried that. Um, and it's actually pretty funny to contrast that to sort of what we see here in the U.S. Because, you know, covering the commercial determinants of health, I often end up covering these sort of food fights, for lack of a better term. Um, and, you know, one of the things that the USDA is considering right now is simply uh, limiting the amount of, uh, of chocolate milk that can be served in schools. So they're considering either banning chocolate milk in elementary school or allowing schools to sell chocolate milk so long as they sell a, a low sugar version. Uh, and if you're, you know, concerned about like added sugar, a policy like that makes sense because there's a good amount of added sugar in chocolate milk. But you wouldn't be leave the level of vitriol that uh, sort of has, has come out of that regulation. I mean, I would never have thought about that when talking about chocolate milk. So like, you can't get something like a chocolate milk restriction here in the U.S. for elementary school kids. Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine sort of a policy like banning the sale of all, uh, you know, sweet products to kids, but it's definitely like an experiment that I'm really watching right now because it is, you know, relatively uh, innovative. You know, it frustrates me as, as someone who is very much in the business of trying to make policy recommendations. I find that the industry is very good at chameleoning when it comes to different value sets. So for example, they would say that a ban violates the freedom of choice that we value so highly in America. How could you ban anything from anyone, right? In this country, we believe that everyone has uh, the freedom to choose and that uh, we can educate, but, but we cannot um, ban. And then when it comes to something like food labeling, which is entirely about saying we are not going to take any option off the table, we are just going to educate consumers about what options are less and more healthy, then it becomes an entire fight about freedom of speech. Right. So it's like the freedom of choice versus the freedom of speech. And what tends to really be the case is that these companies do not want to have to bear any of the costs of the externalities that they put on the world. And I know that's a fancy economics term, but it basically means when, you know, you sell a product, the consequences of which bear out on society in some pretty uh, important but not direct ways that you should have to bear the cost of those uh, outcomes. And that means some sort of regulation to force you uh, to engage in. And what's worst of all is that our taxpayer dollars, not only are we not regulating, but we're actually subsidizing um, the, the production of a lot of these goods. I, you know, as you think about where the American mind is on these things, which of these arguments do you think makes the most sense? You know, do you think that there's sort of a, um, a, a an easier time 
to make an argument about freedom of choice with like clear education uh, and, and compelled speech? Or um, are, 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 you know, is the average uh, American uh, more willing to support something where uh, there's a ban? I, I, you know, I have my, I have my, my, my opinions on this, but I'd love to hear yours as someone who uh, is closer to this evidence. You know, I'm sort of making an educated guess here, but my, my thought from covering these, these issues would be that, you know, a policy that just gives consumers more information is a lot less likely to be controversial. Like any time I've ever covered anything that resembles a ban or limits choice in the U.S., it, uh, it generates some backlash. But, I mean, I haven't seen, besides the food companies, right, I haven't seen the same level of backlash to something like including more information on the front of a food package that says, hey, this is unhealthy. The question, right, and probably the question more for you than for, for me is, uh, which one of those is actually more effective from a public health perspective? Like, I can, I can tell you which one is probably more helpful just from a political messaging perspective. But the question of which one actually works the best, I, I don't know if I have a good answer to that. That's a harder question. Yeah. I think you're, I would tend to agree with you about where the average American would sit. I think people get real uncomfortable with the idea that somebody takes away a choice of theirs. But I think people are more nonplussed about the idea that you're going to give them more information, right? I mean, and it really just comes down to the question of giving you something versus taking something away. Look at the New York fight over over big sodas. I mean, if you remember that from a few years ago, I I mean, that sort of tells you everything you need to know about how the public sometimes responds to these sorts of restrictions. Yeah. I think the the question of, of efficacy to me, I, I've just really been a big supporter of the idea that we should fundamentally rethink our food subsidy policy. You know, I think I think there's there's so many opportunities to support farmers that does not mean growing monocrops that end up turning into either sugar or gasoline <laughs> or fattening up an animal, right? Um and so many of the crops that we do subsidize tend to promote uh, corporate farming. They tend to promote these monocrops, and um, they tend not to promote the kind of diversity of farming that we really, um, I think, need to have and, and would really like to have, and most importantly, could benefit uh, our health in a pretty profound way. And then I think, you know, once you do that, then there's the the question of trying to guide somebody uh, around choice making. I also think that, you know, even in science curricula, we don't do a really good job mapping the basic science that we teach folks to choices that they can make every day, right? So like, you know, similarly with math, you want to explain why math is important, explain compounding and investment, right? But like, we don't really do that. So we tell you about how compounding works in like complete abstraction, but we don't explain why compounding is probably the single most important thing that should dictate how you store your money, right? Um, Similarly, we'll we'll tell you a lot about the Krebs cycle, um, but we don't really explain how that then maps to um, you know, what you're eating and help you make good decisions. So I, I really think that it's not just, you know, red for bad or green for good. It's also like, let's give folks a little bit more ownership of the choices that they make um, and do so by really trying to orient baseline curricula early on to some of these really big, important choices that people are making every day. I really appreciate you joining us um, to, to share a bit more about your reporting uh, and uh, and the effort to, to defang uh uh, El Tigre Tonio in, um, in, in Mexico. Our guest today was Nicholas Florco. He is uh, a health reporter for STAT where he covers commercial determinants of health. Nick, we really appreciate your time. Thank you.
Of course, thanks for having me. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Infant mortality, literally a measure of the number of babies who died before their first birthdays, increased in 2022. That's the first increase in decades. We've done a couple of episodes on infant mortality here, and that's because in America, more babies die per capita than in 53 other countries in the world. Our infant mortality rates are higher than they are in Latvia, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Infant mortality is a complex outcome a measure of a number of factors that affect the womb before a fetus is ever conceived, the health of the person carrying the fetus, the circumstances affecting the birth, and the environment that shapes the infant's life for the first year. All of this is shaped by circumstances that are a lot bigger than simply healthcare. Remember, these numbers are for 2022, meaning these infants were most likely conceived in 2021. And if you remember, 2021 was the single most deadly year of the COVID-19 pandemic. But COVID deaths are the tip of the iceberg also all the ways COVID shaped the mental and physical health of folks leading up to pregnancy. That includes everything from isolation, diet and physical activity, access to in-person healthcare. It also includes the readiness to get pregnant in the first place. Remember, COVID created a, quote, baby bump, which means that a lot of folks who would have been able to avoid pregnancy ended up getting pregnant. And getting pregnant when you don't want to be pregnant implies that by definition, you aren't in your best place to carry a pregnancy to term or care for the infant after they're born. Which brings me to the question of choice, of when, where, and with whom to carry a pregnancy. Quote, pro-life folks think they really are, quote, saving lives by denying abortion access. What they don't really realize is that when people can't control their own fertility, it creates circumstances where they're forced to carry a pregnancy and care for an infant when they don't feel prepared to do so. Those circumstances are terrible for the health of the parent and for the health of the infant. And sadly, I worry that because of the fall of Roe v. Wade, we're going to see these numbers simply continue to climb. For a long time, the American Medical Association has claimed to speak for physicians despite falling completely out of step with where physicians are today. In the past, physicians mainly worked for physician-owned practices. They owned their own businesses and usually contracted with hospitals that used to be actual nonprofits focused mainly on providing healthcare to the local communities rather than maximizing their bottom lines. Look, I wish we lived in a world where all physicians cared simply for the best for their patients and not money or autonomy, but that's simply not the world we live in. So it made sense, at least economically, that physicians in the past might not support single-payer healthcare in that world. But let me remind you how much healthcare has changed over the past two decades. Rather than truly non-profit hospitals of yore, today's hospitals might as well be for-profits if they aren't already. And they've been buying up physician practices left and right. As of 2019, the median physician no longer worked for a physician-owned practice. Instead, they worked for a large healthcare system. And guess what else changed? The median physician also supported single-payer healthcare or Medicare for all, which makes it all the more confusing that the AMA still opposes single-payer healthcare. But that all might change. See, some heroes have been organizing within the AMA to shift its positions, and they might just move the organization. The last time the AMA's House of Delegates debated the question was in 2019, and that effort to shift the tide and force the AMA to support single-payer healthcare was led only by the medical student section. They failed by just 6%. But this time, they'll be joined by a coalition of practicing doctors from New England, We'll keep you posted. Finally, the world lost a giant this past week. Adi Barkin was an activist, organizer, and leading voice for the healthcare system we deserve. He was also my friend and my brother in that work. Adi campaigned for me in Michigan when I ran for office. He wrote the foreword to my first book, Healing Politics. He died of complications from ALS at 39 years old. He leaves behind two children, Carl and Willow, and his incredible wife, Rachel, who will continue his legacy. 
You can donate to support his young family. We'll leave the link in the show notes. Adi's was a vivacity born out of a righteous fight for the rest of us. When he was diagnosed with ALS, he could have resigned to spend the rest of his days with his family. Nobody would have blamed him. Instead, he used the final moments of life to remind us how much life was actually worth and what it meant to protect it. I loved Adi for his passion, his grit, his joy, his wit, but most of all, because he loved all of us. I want to leave you today with inspiration from Adi's interview way back in 2019 when I asked him what the solution to our healthcare brokenness should be. The first, most important solution is Medicare for all. The solution is building a society where every single person rich or poor has access to excellent quality medical care, because we believe that healing shouldn't just be available to CEOs. The solution is a society where we believe, fundamentally, that healthcare is a human right and not a commodity like a car. No more getting on the phone trying to convince your insurance company to cover something. It's all covered. This is personal for me. One of the things I've come to deeply understand over the course of this diagnosis is that our time here is the most precious resource we have. Should we really be spending the limited amount of time we have on earth on the phone with Aetna? Why does it have to be that way? I've been asking myself that question too. That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review the show. It really does go a long way. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope to drop by the Crooked store for some America Dissected merch. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emma Frank. Vasilis Fotopoulos mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takao Sazawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Also, a very special thanks to Michael Martinez, for whom this will be his last show with Crooked Media. Thanks, Mike. Good luck with your next endeavor. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Wayne County, Michigan or its Department of Health, Human and Veteran Services.